Good morning. Um, certainly doesn't seem to get more comfortable. <laughs> uh, I think it'd be good. It's good for anyone, everyone to get up to the front once in a while because you're never so aware of your need for God's spirit to be at work as when you have to be the one getting up doing the talking because you know how weak and fallible and you certainly, well, I certainly feel very small and insignificant when I try to get up to speak and I realize how little I know. Um, So I suppose it wasn't helped either. I had a sermon. When David asked me to preach, I had a sermon in mind, uh, which was great. I even had a structure written out and I thought this will be nice and easy. Uh, I'll be preaching on Psalm 23 is what I thought. not preaching on Psalm 23. Um, And on Monday, I spent the day, I had the day off, so I thought I'll spend the day writing the sermon and I was most of the way through it. Uh, Just had a couple of bits to tidy up because I changed it a bit as I was going. And then Tuesday night we prayed for inspiration. I blame Daniel, myself. Um, (laughs) Just to help tidy it up. And uh, Wednesday morning I was driving somewhere I don't normally go to pick up some stuff for the ark. And so I put on my sat-nav. And when these days, for some reason, Google Maps, when you put on your sat-nav, if you've been listening to something on Spotify, it seems to just continue whatever you were listening to. So I've been listening to a podcast called Holy Ghost Stories, which is just a guy who's a very good storyteller telling different stories from the Bible. And somebody recommended it to me from the ark, and I'd only listened to a couple. And it was on to the third one in the story of Joseph. And so I decided I wouldn't turn it off. Normally I just turn it off because I like to pray in the morning when I'm going. But I thought, oh, I quite enjoyed those stories yesterday. I'll just listen again today. And... Um, there was one line in particular that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And uh, from the story of Joseph, and it was just a direct quote, even though he was expanding the story and making it more, uh, come to life a bit more, the quote that hit me was just a direct quote from the Bible. Um, and sort of next day I woke up, one well, that day I sort of was thinking it over thinking, oh, that's really good. I wonder if I could add that in somewhere to the sermon. And then the next day I woke up and knew I had to change the sermon. So yesterday I spent trying to figure this one out. So it's not that tidy, but I'm hoping that it'll... Well, it impacted me anyway. So I'm hoping that it'll have some impact on you. Um, so before I get to the quote, and I'm going to get there quite quickly... Um, I'd like to just remind you a little bit of the story of Joseph. So, you could probably tell me this as well as I can tell it to you. Um, But Joseph is one of the younger of 12 brothers. Um, He's a favourite because Israel, or Jacob, his father, had married Leah by trickery. And then he had married Rachel, who was the one he wanted to marry. And then it was one of Rachel's children, and she had had, found it hard to have children, and he spoiled Joseph a bit. Um, So his brothers didn't like him too much, uh, because he was the spoiled one, the favourite in the family. Um, And then Joseph starts to have dreams, 
which don't help the situation. So Joseph has a dream that there's 12 stars and 11 of them bow down to him and the sun and the moon bow down to him. And there's 12 sheaves of corn and they all bow down to his sheaf of corn. And so, uh, or wheat, whatever it is. But they, you know, he goes and tells his family, but naively probably. Um, and they're not too hard to interpret. Uh, so his family are a bit annoyed with him and they think he thinks he's better than them. Um, so his brothers don't like him very much. And then one day they come across an opportunity to get rid of him. So he comes out to give them some food that his father sent him with uh, into the fields where they're looking after sheep. And they decide they're going to kill him. And then they can pretend to the father that he was killed by a wild animal. And that'll be that. But then some midnight traders come along and they decide, well, rather than kill him, they'd sell him. Uh, so they sell him into slavery. And he ends up in a guy called Potiphar's house in Egypt. So Potiphar's the captain of the guard uh, for Pharaoh. Um, and Potiphar takes Joseph on. He's quite young. But he finds that, well, God is with Joseph. Everything he does prospers. So anything he turns his hand to seems to succeed. And Potiphar notices this and he goes, well, uh, let's give him more responsibility. And they keeps giving him more responsibility until Joseph has basically charge of everything that Potiphar owns and everything Potiphar does. He does not have to worry about anything because it's in Joseph's hands. Um, but Potiphar's not the only one to notice Joseph. Potiphar's wife also notices him. And so uh, she takes a bit of a shine to him and decides that she's going to try and seduce him. Um, Joseph manages to rebuff her a number of times. But one day he goes in and she is alone in the house and she grabs his garment. He tries to run away um, and she's left holding his garment. And so she then decides, what am I going to do? So she cries out and says, this man tried to have his way with me. And uh, so falsely accuses him. Potiphar comes home. She's got his, gar his garment and she gets him thrown in prison. Um, and you would think, well, that's what it is. It's horrible. You know, Joseph's life, he's got all these dreams. He's expecting to, um, you know, be in some sort of leadership position at some point, but he's a slave and now he's a prisoner. And uh, things seem to go from bad to worse, although God is still with him, still at work in him. Everything he does prospers in the prison. And the, basically the prison guard notices that and puts him in charge of everything in the prison. Um, and then a bit later, Pharaoh sends two of his servants into prison too with him. So you've got the cupbearer and the baker. Um, they both have dreams. Uh, and the dreams basically end up... Well, Joseph notices that they're not looking too happy, so he asks them what's going on. They say, we've had dreams, no one's here to interpret them. So Joseph says, tell me your dreams. And so they tell him the dreams, and Joseph interprets them for them. And basically the interpretation of the dreams ends up being that the cupbearer will be restored to his position, whereas the baker is going to receive the death penalty. So um, Joseph asks the cupbearer to remember him when he gets set free. And what happens is the dreams come true. Uh, 
the baker is killed, the cupbearer is restored to his position with Pharaoh, and so is Pharaoh his drinks. Now, he either forgets Joseph, or I can imagine he's thinking, how am I going to bring this up with Pharaoh? Um, <laughs> doesn't, you know, it's not probably the easiest thing to do. This guy in prison, he, he told me, you know, the stuff, and you should listen to him, um, and set him free. So, anyway, he, he doesn't do anything. Um, but then Pharaoh, <coughs> a couple of years later, Pharaoh has a dream. Um, and... Pharaoh calls together all of the wise men in the country and all of the magicians and he asks them to interpret it for him but none of them can do it. And the cupbearer is probably serving him drinks while all this is going on and then works up the courage to go. Well, actually, there was a guy in prison uh, who interpreted our dreams and he got it right. Uh, maybe you better speak to him. So... Um, so he goes out, he calls Joseph. Joseph is called to Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And I think most of you will know the interpretation. Basically, there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, which will make you forget the years of plenty. Um, and this dream is given twice. But Joseph doesn't just stop at interpreting the dream. Uh, you know, his job was just to come and interpret but he actually starts then to give advice. So this is what happens. Uh, so Genesis 41, verse 32 to 37. Joseph says this, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, because he had the two dreams, means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. And here's the advice. Now Pharaoh, now let the Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let the Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt. Turning the seven plentiful, uh, during the seven plentiful years, and then them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve <coughs> for the land against the seven years of famine that are going to occur in the land, um, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So then the next line, verse 37, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So they saw this good advice, and they thought, this is brilliant. Now, I want you to imagine into that situation and think, okay, this advice has been given. Choose the wisest person that you can find to run this thing. And you think back to the fact that Pharaoh had called, called all the wise men and all the magicians to him. So all of these guys were around him. And he had Stephen Hawking there to advise him on his cosmology problems. Uh, maybe give him some advice on the weather bar or best, maybe. Uh, you've got David Attenborough to tell you what to do with the animals. Um, how best to look after them. Better appoint him. Or Richard Branson and Lord Sugar give him business advice and investment advice. He had those guys all there, you know, ready and waiting, the best guys in the world. Uh, at all of these different areas, he could have called on any of them. Uh, he had Monty Don to advise him on how to grow stuff the best during those years of plenty. Um, so he could have used all of these experts in the different fields, um, but he doesn't do that. What does Pharaoh say? And this is the line that struck out for me. Pharaoh said to his servant, can we find a man like this 
in whom is the Spirit of God. And as I heard that line, it just hit my heart. And I was like, just imagine. So Pharaoh's known Joseph for about half an hour here. Um, Joseph is a human trafficked slave who is on the sex register. And what they, the person he chooses above all of these other people is this guy. And why? What makes him different? It's because he has the Spirit of God within him. So Joseph has an unfair advantage over everyone else in the world. Uh, no one else can give the wisdom and advice that Joseph can give because he has the Spirit of God in him. Um, basically, God, if God's Spirit is with him and causing everything he does to prosper, he is the one. You know, if you've got God's wisdom, what other wisdom do you need? And, and that's what Joseph has. And it ended up that Pharaoh recognizing this caused the fact that Joseph changed the world during that time. He changed the course of history for Israel and for Egypt. Um, Egypt became a really wealthy nation. It was wealthy before, but now that they had access to all the food in the world for that region, everyone was coming to them to buy food. Um, but all of this was because Joseph had the Spirit of God in him. So, this made me think, and if you've not gone there already, maybe I'll take you there now. All of us are supposed to be filled with the Spirit of God. Um, but, try and imagine this. Imagine a church, and there's quite a few in here today. So, 30 or 40 Josephs just sitting there people who can change the world and you've got 30 or 40 of them uh, in one place imagine what they could do in Tandragee uh, and then you think of a wider than that and think well imagine what Joseph would do if he was uh, in Shelbourne Motors or in Craig Avenue Hospital or we've got two Josephs just in links around the corner here and just imagine the difference that it would make in the lives of the people that we meet. Imagine the Joseph and Seymour Hill Primary School. And you're sort of thinking, what difference would that make? And then you think of all the Christians in those different businesses uh, or schools. And you think, you know, I know Seymour Hill's got at least five members of the staff. You're a Christian. You've got five Josephs there. And you can just imagine the impact that that would have on the people around, if they were to look at them and say, uh, you know, who can find a person like Ruth or like Jason or like Ashley in whom is the Spirit of God? Um, so then the question that, that came up to my mind is like, well, it doesn't feel like people are doing that. Um, so I asked, am I like that? Am I like Joseph? Am I so full of the Spirit of God that people can say, you know, who can find a man like Joel within whom is the Spirit of the living God? Um, and if, if it's not like that, and I don't think it is for me, I, I think I don't want to be down and negative about ourselves um, because I think we have the Spirit of God, and it tells us that very clearly. We cannot be a Christian unless we have the Spirit of God. 
Um, I actually walked into my bathroom this morning and the electric light switch was on. Uh, and it was so early in the morning, everything was dark, but I could see because of the wee light from the electric shower. And I thought, you know, I think maybe I'm shining a wee bit. So in a really dark place, you might notice. But why can't I be a thousand watt bulb? You know, why can't I be a bit brighter? Um, and if I'm not, should I be satisfied that I'm not? Um, and then I thought, is it, is it rude actually to be unsatisfied? Uh, because God has done a lot. I do feel he speaks to me quite a bit. Um, I feel that, he, that I'm closer to him now than I have been for a long time. And so I'm sort of thinking, well, I don't want to be rude to God and say, look, I'm not satisfied with what you're giving me. Um, but actually, I came across a passage a few weeks ago, which I think suggests that we shouldn't be satisfied unless we're as close to God as we should, as we, as we should be. You know, we should be yearning for more. So the passage is in Jeremiah chapter 2. And it's right at the beginning of Jeremiah. Um, so Jeremiah has been sent to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And this is one of the first messages he's to give. They're about to be sent into exile. And God is trying to tell them why. So Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 13. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. Remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. So I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. When you followed me in the wilderness and a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declared the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land, to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled the land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, shepherds being leaders. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that did not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedo, and examine with care, and see if there has ever been such a thing. <coughs> has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, I suppose that, that stood out for me from that was that Israel had drifted from God. They had not kept up their initial relationship with God. And to be honest, I never felt their initial relationship with God was that great to start with. 
But, but they didn't seem to notice that God was no longer working in Israel or, and acting the same way with Israel as he had when Moses was around. Um, you know, when Moses was there, he did amazing miracles to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He brought them through a Red Sea. He fed them food in a desert that had never been plowed. He uh, gave them water from rocks. You know, stuff that just doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't even make sense. You know, you can't find a scientific way of going, that's what will happen there. He asks you to do sometimes ridiculous things that don't make sense to prove that it's him and nothing else. And they, did, they weren't asking, where is he? Why is he not doing the things that he used to do? They were just quite happy to go along and they were doing their religious rituals and stuff like that. But they weren't in a real relationship with God where, and they weren't expecting him to act in the same way that he has acted before. Um, those who handled the Lord didn't know. They didn't know, they didn't think, okay, this is what it says in the law that he did, so therefore, this is what I expect him to still be like, because God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, he's not partial in any way. He's not going to treat us differently than he treated our ancestors if we seek him. Um, so, he, God was actually upset with them, not because they expected too much of him, but because they expected too little of him. They didn't, they didn't expect him to act with them in the same way as he had before. They weren't seeking him and going, what is wrong? Why are we not as close to God as we should be? Um, so, yeah, I have a firm belief that if they had, if they had gone, God, we are going completely the wrong way here. We realize, like, we, where are you? You know, why are you not answering us? If they'd actually listened to the answer, they would have discovered probably, uh, as in the same way that if I listened to the answer, discovered it's not God's fault that he's far from them. You know, they had drifted from him. Um, and God gave the promises that he gave in Deuteronomy. He gave curses with it. If you do this, then I will bless you. If you do that, then... Uh, you will go into exile. Your enemies will defeat you. You will have drought and famine. And all of these things are all very clear. Um, but if they had turned, God is so gracious that he would have taken them back immediately. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 to 21 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. This is a bit earlier, but it's the same sort of situation. You know, they've been warned that there's an exile coming. And, and Isaiah is saying, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversary, adversity, and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes will see your teacher, and your ears will hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the left or to the right. So God promises to guide. He promises to lead. He promises to forgive them straight away, to reveal himself to them. The teacher is only hiding himself to teach. Um, and we should be seeking. 
And as I consider the wider church today, um, I can't help but wonder are our expectations of what our relationship with God should be like too low? Um, Should we be asking, where is the Lord? Um, When we see the spiritual people of the Bible and what they look like, can we honestly say we're as close to God and as spirit-filled as we should be or could be? Um, And then during the week, Ruth and I were reading through the book of Acts. Um, and we've actually just got towards the end we've just finished it actually um, and this is towards the end of it and Paul has been sent to Rome and it just happened that we were reading it at the same time as all of this was going on but I could pick any story from the Bible or any story from the book of Acts pretty much um, that Paul's been sent to Rome and I was just thinking you know, what does a spiritual person look like this guy is a prisoner he's been, pr- he's a, he's been prisoned unjustly a bit like Joseph um, he, he was basically the Jews were trying to kill him the tribune arrested him because they thought he was a troublemaker uh, he tried to punish him to find out what trouble he was making and then found out he was a Roman citizen and then he found out the Jews were trying to kill him so he sent him off to Caesarea uh, to Felix the governor and Felix tried him couldn't find anything wrong with him um, uh, but he kept him in prison because he wanted to please the Jews then governors change Festus comes in and he keeps him in prison and the Jews are asking, well, bring him back to Jerusalem so we can try him also plotting to kill him again. And so Paul appeals to Caesar. So Paul is off, being sent off to Rome um, to, to go stand trial under Caesar. They actually don't know what charge to put on him because they have no charge. Um, so they've also tried him. King Agrippa's tried him. So loads of opportunities to speak to the top people in the land Paul has had over these few years. And he's been sent off to Rome. They've put him on a ship, and it's autumn. And the weather's not so good. Uh, winter's coming, and they, um, they had a bit of wind. They get to Cyprus, and uh, they're in a port. The port's not great, but they're there, and, and Paul says to them, All right, I perceive. God has told me that if we go out to sea again, that we're going to be, you know, we're going to lose life, and we're going to lose a lot of valuable stuff. Stay put, and then the pilot says, "No, we're gonna. If we just get to the next harbour, it'll be a much better place to spend the winter. Let's just go." And you know, if I was a Roman soldier, I would probably go with the pilot rather than the prisoner too. You know, he's the expert. So they set off, and then as soon as they set off, massive storm comes, blows them out to sea, and there's two weeks of horrendous storm. They're throwing everything overboard to try and survive. And um, so they've lost, they've had massive losses, as Paul said. Um, by the end of the two weeks, they're all expecting just to, to die. They don't expect to survive it. Um, everyone except Paul. Paul comes to them and says, God has come to me. And he sends his angel. And if you do what I say, everyone will be saved. And so this time they start to listen to him. And so... He says to them, okay, uh, first of all, some of the sailors are trying to get onto a lifeboat to get off and escape on their own. And he says, you need to, if anyone leaves the ship, then we're going to perish. Cut the cords of that lifeboat. They listen to him enough to cut the cords of the lifeboat and they let it drift. And then they crash up on a reef um, and everyone gets to shore. So they get to shore on an island called Malta and um, everyone survives just as Paul said. 
And then they own Malta. The locals are very good to them. They make a fire to warm them up. And Paul helps them, and he gets bitten by a snake. And there's a snake on his hand. He shakes it into the fire, and the locals go, ha, ah, he must be a murderer. Because, you know, justice has got him. You know, he escaped the sea, but he wasn't going to escape justice. Um, justice is going to get him. He's going to die. And so they're watching him, waiting for him to drop dead. But he doesn't. So then they change their mind and go, he must be a god, because the snake bite didn't affect him. And... You sort of think, if you're these Roman soldiers sitting with Paul and thinking, what is this man like? Um, but it's also amazing that actually when people are filled with the Spirit of God, they can be very misunderstood. Is he a prisoner? Is he a murderer? Is he, is he God? Uh, who is this person? It's a bit like Sp- uh, Superman. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so anyway, I've lost my place. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Paul is, is there on the island. He's, he's gone through all of this. And then you find that the chief person in the island, um, his uh, father is sick and in bed, uh, really sick. And so Paul goes and he prays for him and heals him. And then everyone who's sick on the island is brought to him. And Paul prays for them all and heals them. And then when they leave him in the spring, uh, all of the people die and give them gifts to go with them and send them on their way. They're so grateful for what Paul has done. And they get to where they're going to, and they're greeted by a bunch of Christians who look after them because of Paul. And then they get to Rome, and there's a big group of people come to meet them because of Paul. And you sort of think, imagine the witness to the Roman soldiers who are with them. You know, and they could ask, who is like this man, filled with the Spirit of God? Um, whatever situation we're in, whether it's in prison or whether it's whatever, whether we're understood or not, you know, people should be able to notice that there's a difference. Who is like this person filled with the Spirit of God? Um, you should really look at these. Um, <laughs> so, where did I get to? Yeah, and like I say, the whole Bible's full of this. It's full of stories like this. Think of David and Goliath, you know, the whole of the Israelite army, all of their trained soldiers who, who've been trained in all the armor and all of that, they're scared of Goliath because he's too big and strong. Um, but this little shepherd boy, he's not scared. He's got the Spirit of God. He knows God's with him. And he's like, well, who's like this man filled with the Spirit of the living God? Daniel ends up right at the top in Babylon because who's as wise as this man? He's filled with the Spirit of God. And that's at the same time as Jeremiah's there. Daniel was sent off during Jeremiah's prophecies to uh, the Israelites in Jerusalem. So while Jeremiah's complaining about people not listening to God and not expecting much of him, Daniel's in Babylon listening to God and expecting a lot of him. Um, And like I said, the whole book of Acts is just filled with amazing stories of how people spread the gospel message and it's confirmed with accompanying signs and wonders. Um, and our temptation is to think well that's the Bible, those are special people um, we can't expect God to act the same today um, you know, that's ridiculous you know, that was back then and God was very evident um, but the Bible doesn't say that, the Bible James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like us 
but he prayed fervently that it would not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain and bore fruit. In his day, he was like Elijah, filled with the Spirit of God. God doesn't show partiality. Um, the heroes in the Bible were people with a nature just like us. They stood out not because of their own wisdom or strength or abilities, but because they were filled with the Spirit of God. If I look at my life, honestly, I know that the Spirit is at work, like I said earlier. Um, I can see the changes He's made in my life, so I'm not saying that we shouldn't appreciate what God has done and is doing in our lives. I think that actually appreciation is something that we should have, and not giving thanks to God is one of the biggest sins. Um, uh, he, he's, he speaks clearly, He gives conviction of sin at times and direction. Um, when I study His Word and I'm especially during Bible studies, I find that they are. I find that I'm, I'm able to remember stuff. I'm able to, you know, have the appropriate verse for what the person's struggle is often. And so I do feel that his spirit is at work, but I still feel that there's more. Um, that I'm not walking in the fullness of all that I read about uh, in the Bible of what it, what it, those who believe in God should look like. Um, and for me, I think partly, there's a whole lot of things, but I think there's partly a, a dying to the flesh. We've, we've become alive in the spirit, but there's always a wrestle between the flesh and the spirit. Um, and I think unless we die to the flesh, then we don't live completely in the spirit because we're too living too much in the flesh, probably for all of us. Um, that's one to think about a bit more, maybe. But I would like people to be able to see it, say of me, who is like this man, filled with the Spirit of God. Um, and if you do too, uh, if you think, well, maybe I'm not as close to what a New Testament Christian looks like, or any Testament Christian looks like, what follower of God looks like, really, um, you might be asking, what can we do about it? Um, and I don't have a huge amount of suggestions because I don't feel I'm there yet either. But there's some obvious ones. Um, so I'm going to make a couple of obvious ones. That firstly, just even from that passage in Jeremiah 2, we shouldn't accept uh, less than what has been promised. I don't think we shouldn't just live with it and accept it and not expect too much from God. Um, we should be a little bit discontent until we are completely... Close, as close to God as we should be. Um, I'm not talking about grieving things badly, but there's a godly grief that causes us to draw closer to God. Um, and this discontentment with our situation should cause us to draw close to Him, to seek Him with all of our heart. Um, and the other thing we can do is pray like David prayed in the Psalms, created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And search me and know me. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So ask God for direction as to how to get that closeness 
to him that you're looking for. Um, I think if we pray these prayers with sincerity, <coughs> God will reveal um, himself to us and he will reveal ways in which we can change, ways that we can grow. He'll convict us of sin if we need it. Um, but, but I think that's, those are two things we can do anyway. Um, so my aim today, and I hope none of you do feel guilty, my aim today is not to make any of you feel guilty for your walk with God. My aim is to try and inspire you um, as to what is possible, um, where we could be, if we were filled completely with the Spirit of God, if we allowed ourselves to be discontent with not being as close to God as we should be, um, and we sought Him with all of our heart and soul and mind. Um, I think, for myself anyway, I, we all feel responsibility to represent God to the people around us. And I think that unless we're filled with the Spirit of God, then we'll only just be trying really hard in human efforts, and a human cannot represent God. There's no way that we can represent who God is in our own strength. We need the Spirit of God. No one knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God. So we need the Spirit of God in us in order to represent Him. So there's no point in us trying really hard to evangelize if we're not filled with the Spirit of God. Um, or to love people. Uh, our mission statement of the ark is to love, demonstrate the love of God to our community following the example of Jesus. But we can't do that. I can't. I don't even understand the love of God, according to Ephesians 3. It's so great that I don't understand it. How can I demonstrate it to my community but I don't understand it unless I'm filled with the Spirit of God? Because then I can know the mind of God. Um, so, we can't just try really hard um, to be better. The only way that we can be filled with the Spirit of God is being connected to God. Um, and the only way we can get his wisdom is it's not about working hard. It's about seeking God um, and seeking that connection, abiding in him and letting him abide in you. Um, Jesus modeled it. So when he was baptized, the Spirit came down and, and rested on him like a dove. Um, and then... Immediately, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tested. And he followed the Spirit. He didn't then, within the test, decide for himself how to respond to each thing. I believe he was led by the Spirit. And so, um, when Satan tempted him, part of the whole test was, will you give in to temptation and decide what's best for yourself? Or will you listen to God and be led by him? Um, and Jesus does this, and he's, you can tell he's led by spirit because he's quoting scripture, and all scripture is God-breathed, uh, spirit-breathed. Um, then Jesus continued his ministry, walking in step with the spirit, following God in everything he did. And in John chapter 5, it tells us that Jesus tells us himself that he only ever does what he sees the Father doing. He's not just making up for himself what to do. I think he limited himself in the same way that we're limited on earth. It says that in Philippians 2 that he um, made himself nothing <coughs> took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself. So he, he took on our nature. He allowed himself to be led by the Spirit. And he modelled it for us. And now, look, 
If Jesus needed to do only what he saw the Father doing, why do we think we can do it without doing that? Um, and, yeah, it almost seems blasphemous to say Jesus stood out, you know, in his, in his day. He changed the course of history, he even changed the calendar. Um, and people would be asking, who's like this man? Filled with the Spirit of God. And then in Romans 8, 29, Paul tells us that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, what Paul is saying here is that our destination as Christians, everyone that God knew would become Christian, their destination is to be conformed into the image of his Son. That's our whole purpose. So, the reason that we live is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So, can you imagine, let's not imagine 30 or 40 Josephs walking around. Imagine 30 or 40 Christs walking around Tandridi and the impact that that would have. Can I pray?